Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Global shipping levels have been slumping in the past few years. The problem is, the shipping industry didn't seem to notice, building massive new ships and ports. We pay a visit to Rotterdam, one of the world's largest ports, and find that things are pretty quiet. And, OMG, the internet is ruining language. Well, that's what the purists say. Our language columnist sees it another way. Online communications correspond to neither written language nor common speech. It's a whole new world. Wide web. <laughs> Lol. But first... In Venezuela, the contest between democracy and dictatorship has reached a dangerous impasse. Nicolás Maduro's despotic regime clings on after a series of setbacks for the opposition. The mood today is nothing like the optimism that took hold six months ago. In January, opposition leader Juan Guaidó burst onto the international scene with a dramatic bid for change. As the head of the opposition-controlled legislature, he declared himself interim president, after a rigged election had given Mr. Maduro another term in office. Thousands took to the streets to support Mr. Guaido. From relative obscurity, he has become the living embodiment of a dream. Abroad, he won recognition as Venezuela's legitimate leader. Now we have a new leader, Juan Guaido, in Venezuela who has promised to bring elections and constitutional order back to Venezuela. And fresh American oil sanctions put pressure on the regime. Three months later, Mr. Guaido announced Operation Liberty, the final push to free Venezuela from the grip of its dictator. He called on military officers to defect, but not enough joined the rebellion. Today, Mr. Guaido might have popular support within the country and the support of foreign governments. Just yesterday, President Donald Trump announced plans to divert more than $40 million in humanitarian aid to help the opposition. But it's the illegitimate President Maduro who still has the firepower. Since April, we're experiencing this sort of dangerous stalemate. Stephen Gibbs is our Venezuela correspondent, reporting from Caracas. Where Maduro remains in power perhaps weakened by evidence that there were those that were prepared to rebel against him, but not enough. And Guaido also, who was hugely popular at the beginning of the year, but seems to be running out of options. So why do you think Mr. Guaido's plans failed? Why didn't he get the support in particular from the military that he was looking for? I think one key problem is the nature of the military here in Venezuela. Since Hugo Chavez, Maduro's predecessor, became president in 1999, 
he heavily politicized the military. It had to swear its allegiance to not just the country, but to the socialist revolution, as they say here. It also became heavily infiltrated. Cuba's played a part in that. So it's quite difficult to organize a sort of coup within the military now because you are being spied upon. It's also a very top-heavy institution with thousands of generals. You haven't got your classic chain of command. So all sorts of problems to make it very, very difficult to organize a concerted uprising within the military and lots of disincentives to do that. And what about among the opposition? Where, where do things stand today? Well, I mean, under Guaido, there was a sort of brief honeymoon, I'd say, within the opposition where they decided to ignore their splits and just rally behind this one man, not necessarily because they thought he was the greatest leader, but because he was an interim solution. There were certainly hopes this would happen in a few weeks. We're now looking at six months. So you now have a rather different role for Guaido. He's becoming a sort of more permanent leader of the opposition. And we are beginning to see the criticisms of him, both from the members of the public and more discreetly, perhaps, from people within the opposition. One of the things you notice right at the beginning, he used to say, vamos bien. Vamos bien. We're going well. Vamos muy bien. Vamos Everything muy bien. is going to be sorted soon. Vamos bien. Vamos muy bien porque now you don't bien. hear people say that slogan anymore. It's now taken on a sort of sarcastic tone and people say, yeah, yeah, aren't we doing well? Meaning we're not doing well at all. And so with these failed coup attempts now in the rearview mirror, is the opposition sort of paying the price at the hands of the government? Yes, without question. I mean, while Juan Guaido remains free, around 20 opposition parliamentarians have had their immunity lifted. Many of them have since gone into exile a senior vice president of the opposition-controlled parliament is currently detained by the state authorities. So no question about it, there's been a clampdown against the opposition. And alongside that, there's also been evidence of the government really taking what law there is into its own hands. The UN High Commissioner for Human Rights published evidence just last week that state security forces had murdered at least 6,800 people from January 2018 to May 2019. Now, it seems like a free-for-all against what the government would say is criminal gangs here, but almost no right to defence by those accused of crimes. And so what hope is there for any kind of transition, perhaps, you know, w without the drama of a coup? Well, that is underway at the moment, somewhat discreetly. There are talks being sponsored by the government of Norway that this week are continuing in Barbados. There's a third meeting between representatives of the Maduro government and the opposition. That does seem to be the best hope for some sort of solution. What sort of solution would that be? It's ultimately new fresh elections with a new electoral commission and some sort of deal where the Maduro government feels it can take part in that, but the opposition feels that it would be a fair election. One of the big sticking points is whether President Maduro might stand down before those elections. And one compromise the rumour mill is talking about is that both Guaido and President Maduro stand down and there's a technocrat who might take over the government before those elections. And in the meantime, what's life been like for the people of Venezuela who are suffering through this crisis? Oh, it's becoming increasingly difficult, no question about it. You know, that is why four million people 
have left this country in the last four years or so. Emigration is becoming a form of protest. This is a country where, okay, inflation has actually dropped in the last few weeks, but it's still at close to 500,000% at an annual rate. Basics are difficult to come by. In terms of protests, they seem to be losing their steam. You know, at the beginning of this year, Guaido led a few protests and there were very, very big turnouts. He doesn't really call for mass protests anymore because people are exhausted. A lot of the people who were protesting have now left Venezuela. So is there anything else that Mr. Maduro should be afraid of? Well, the attempt at a military uprising on April the 30th by Guaido, okay, it failed, but there's very convincing evidence that it was a serious attempt that was backed by some very senior people in the Maduro government. Now, the head of the intelligence agency, Sebin, the the former head now, has left the country and he openly says he backed that attempt at an uprising. There are questions about the head of the Supreme Court, even the defence minister here. That must make it a little more difficult for Maduro to sleep comfortably every night. He says that he does have total loyalty, but he surely knows that there are people around him that are very unhappy. Stephen, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. The rising tide of globalization lifted many industries. A big one was container shipping. Between 1985 and 2007, the number of giant ships moving containerized goods around the world soared. The industry grew at twice the rate of global GDP, along with consumers' appetite for products made in the world's workshop, China. Now, though, things have changed. A good place to go is the port of Rotterdam, which has some of the world's most modern and automated loading and unloading facilities for container cargo. Charles Reed writes about transport for The Economist. Lately, that's entailed hanging out around Docklands. Rotterdam is undergoing a massive expansion project over the past decade. But when these terminals were planned, it was assumed that world trade would continue to rise. But since the financial crisis, that hasn't happened. And this means that there is a lot of port capacity in Rotterdam and other places, which is massively underused. My first visit to APM Terminal's new facility, there was only one ship in port. So what exactly has changed that that the ports should be so empty? What has changed is the old relationship between GDP growth and the growth in world trade Before the financial crisis a decade ago, world trade would grow two or three times the rate of global economic growth. But since the financial crisis, each year world trade grows much more slowly than global economic growth. And the amount of container demand for moving around containers is only rising about two or three percent a year. The industry, however, has only cottled on to this trend over the past few years. 
So the world's biggest container shipping lines decided to build huge numbers of new, absolutely massive ships. The only thing is that trade volumes have remained suppressed in recent years, and these massive ships have flooded the industry with overcapacity. And so why hasn't demand uh, sort of recovered along with the world economy? So there's several reasons for this. The first is trade wars, for example, between America and China, and the growth of increasingly protectionist politics, not simply in America, but elsewhere. However, this answer is a bit too simplistic. According to McKinsey, a consultancy, the growth in global trade began to fall in 2013, after rising for decades and decades and decades. Instead, since 2013, trade within continents, regional trade, has begun to rise again. And this is not simply because of the politics, this is because there's commercial reasons for doing this. So what are the commercial reasons for that then? Firstly, consumer tastes are changing much faster than they used to. This means that by the time you get your new clothing range from China to Europe, it might have gone out of fashion. This means that there's an increasing advantage for companies to make their new products closer to the places where their consumers are. It's partly also that the cost advantages of moving production to cheaper countries are much less than they used to be. The gap between wages in Asia and Europe is much smaller than it used to be. And new labour-saving methods of production, 3D printing, new robots, means that the cost of labour is not as great in the developed world as it might have been in the past. So, so I presume that there is a sort of a point of diminishing returns or an arrival of sense about going bigger and bigger and bigger. What's, what is the industry going to do? That moment has arrived for some companies, but not necessarily others. A lot of Asian carriers are going for scale, more because this is an industry now seen as being strategically important for the national economy and for national security. The bankruptcy of Hanjin Shipping in 2016, exposed the vulnerability of Asian manufacturing firms. And so the governments of China, of Korea, of, and Japan are subsidizing their national shipping companies. But this, is, this isn't good if you're a Western commercial company. Looking at those Asian carriers, some Western firms have gone, well, we're going to lose this battle. We can't fight against these state subsidies and have eased off on ordering new ships. Well, it seems with the, this, these dynamics, the, the industry is building more and more and more capacity, but ultimately harming itself such that less and less stuff will actually get carried. Exactly. Or certainly that ships will get less full. And eventually there will be some sort of tipping point where capacity stops rising so dramatically as it has in the past. And in some places, they're starting to realise this. Charles, thanks very much for coming in. Thank you. We can blame the internet for all sorts of social ills. E-commerce for bankrupting bookshops, social media for stopping us socializing in real life, making us all think rather too much about cats, and the whole lot of it for ruining language. Kids use text-speak and emojis, grammar's gone out the window, long-form writing is long gone, right? None of this is really true. Lane Green writes Johnson, our column on language. 
First of all, speech hasn't really changed that much. This interview we're having might have a couple of words that didn't exist in English 20 years ago, like emoji, but basically the impact of technology on how people talk is marginal. You might hear kids say LOL or WTF, but it's hardly changing the fundamentals of the English language. What about writing, though? People write, by and large, like they did before in the formats where they're expected to write formal, proper English. This sort of idea that kids write lots of text-speak initialisms like WTF and LOL in their school essays is a complete invention, as far as I can tell, of sort of middle-aged agonists in the newspaper columns. People have looked into this and found almost no evidence for sort of text-speak in school essays. All this is the subject of a great new book by Gretchen McCulloch, who is a commentator on uh, language and linguistics. And uh, the book is called Because Internet. And so her take is, is more or less what you were saying, that the kids are all right, the language is fine. So one of the reasons this is a great book is that it really just tells you a lot about language itself. You can develop bacteria in a petri dish or you can breed fruit flies in a laboratory, partly because you get generation after generation iterated very quickly. So you can learn very much about biology. And in the same vein, the Internet sees trends rise and fall far more quickly, I think, than they ever did in the age of the sort of hot metal press because things, when they come into fashion, they come into fashion with a big rush. Everybody wants to be using the latest slang or jargon. And then once it gets caught on by everybody, then the cool kids have to move on to something new. So I think the cycle of innovation is a lot faster. But we can use that cycle of innovation to learn things about traditional speech. We can learn, for example, why languages change by looking at the connections between speakers or writers. So about a thousand years ago, the languages that became English and Icelandic were closely related. In fact, speakers of the two could maybe even understand each other. And since then, Icelandic has changed very, very little and English quite a lot. And uh, computer scientists and linguists looked at how network effects explain those changes. Iceland is a community where most people know each other very well. In fact, people use first names. So people know each other. It's almost like an extended family. The English community is far more widespread, and England was also repeatedly conquered by waves of new conquerors, and so lots of second language speakers. As a result, England has a combination of strong and weak ties. If you have a community of only very strong ties, you tend to get very little language change. And somebody did a clever uh, computer simulation to find that it's this combination of strong and weak ties that really leads language change. You get strong ties that disseminate innovations from so-called leaders of language change to everybody else in the network. Well, in a second step, Gretchen McCulloch looks at Twitter and Facebook and compares Facebook to Icelandic, where there's relatively little linguistic innovation, and it behaves a little bit like Iceland, where everybody knows everybody. You're only Facebook friends with friends and family, whereas Twitter behaves a lot more like English. You have close contacts and people you interact with regularly, but you'll also follow lots and lots of people you don't know personally, and as a result, Twitter has generated a lot more linguistic innovation, a little bit like English. One of the hallmarks of internet communication these days is emojis. Where does that fit into this discussion? So emojis are really interesting. You might get the impression that kids write with nothing but emojis sometimes. If you see somebody's mobile across the room, chances are you can see lots of emojis on their screen. The reason uh, they're so interesting is because, as, as Gretchen McCulloch says, they're really quite a lot like gesture. People almost cannot talk without gesturing. We're here on the radio, but yet we move our hands naturally when we talk. Blind people gesture, and they even gesture when they know they're talking to another blind person. So it's really fundamental as a sort of second channel when we speak. And we don't have this in writing. In very short messages, tweets or text messages, people can 
mean to be sarcastic when the other person doesn't get that that was intended. Sarcastic and feelings get hurt. That's why we gesture when we speak. And so this book argues that's why we use so many emoji. It's essentially the equivalent of gesture, and it makes a really important difference in how a message is received. So, okay, the the Internet technology has not ruined the language, but it has no doubt changed the language. Well, you might think of this. We did have speech for probably a couple hundred thousand years or so. Uh, we've had writing for sort of five or six thousand uh, ish. And we've had this kind of middle form of uh, writing in format, but in style very, very much like speech, only for the sort of 20 or 30 years of the Internet. I think we have a new third medium that is sort of of, of the two, speech and writing, but it's distinct from both. So it hasn't so much changed writing as it has added a genre or a mode of communication to the other two that we already have. Lane, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.